Mark chapter 12. <laughs> Since we've been back in Mark's gospel, we've been, we've been seeing Jesus is kind of coming to the climax of his earthly ministry. Well, he is coming to the climax of his earthly ministry. He's coming to this last week heading up to the cross. And a few weeks ago, we've heard Ben, if you were around, preaching on Jesus entering Jerusalem. Jesus coming in, he's riding in on a donkey. And the crowds welcoming him, or the crowds who were coming with him, praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes. Then we, we saw that Jesus then is, is, is on the front foot, he's going for it, he's into the temple, turning over the tables, causing a bit of chaos, showing that he wasn't happy with what was going on there. And off the back of that, the leaders start to question, well, who's given you this authority? Who, what, what do you think you're playing at? And we see that Jesus continues to talk to them here. They've asked the question, he asked one back, they refuse to answer, they're a bit on the back foot. And Jesus, then it says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. So Jesus tells them a story. Jesus tells them a story and we're going to look at that, uh, this story which in the NIV at least is called the parable of the tenants. So we'll look at uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 1 to 12. And then we'll have a look what we can see in this story. So Mark chapter 12 and verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. But they seized him beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying... They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus tells them a story, he tells them a parable, and... It's clear as we look through some of the Gospels, we see some of the parables Jesus has to explain to his disciples afterwards, and he has to explain them, and they're not necessarily very clear. Well, the leaders make it quite clear that they knew what Jesus was talking about. The leaders were clear he's talking about us. He's talking against us. It's a clear 
parable. Jesus tells the story of, look, you religious leaders. The vineyard's going to be taken away. The, the inheritance is going to be taken away from you. Look, you've got it wrong. And they would have kind of twigged pretty quickly something of what this parable was about because Jesus is in part quoting from Isaiah chapter 5. And so they would have been well aware of the scriptures and the prophecies that had come. And in Isaiah chapter 5, we see a very similar story about a vineyard. Isaiah 5 verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And they would have known straight away this picture of the vineyard, this sense of, well, this is about God's relationship with his people. This is about God's people and God's people producing fruit. And God looking for the fruit of the vineyard and seeing that his people are doing well. So they would have been very familiar with this idea. Oh yeah, he's talking about oh, the landowner, God plants his vineyard and there's the vineyard and we want the vineyard to produce fruit. Pleasing to God. So they would have been familiar. But then they would have also noticed that Jesus doesn't quite tell the same story. He tells a similar story. And they would have been quite clear, they would have realised, I see what he's doing here. Instead of just talking about an unfruitful vineyard, or the vineyard hasn't produced any fruit, he talks about those who are working the vineyard. He talks about, though, it's not just that the vineyard itself isn't fruitful and, and it hasn't produced the fruit, there's a reason why. And he focuses on the farmers. He focuses on the tenants that he's left to tend his vineyard, to look after his vineyards. And so he's even more specifically talking about his people, but particularly about the leaders of the people. About the religious leaders. He's talking to them and saying, look, can you see what you are doing? So in Isaiah, there was a a picture of an unfruitful vineyard. Look, God's people not following him very well. Here, very specifically, look, you leaders of the people, you haven't done what I wanted. So we're going to look through the story kind of bit by bit, and we're going to pick out and we'll see what we can see from it and what God would say to us today before we kind of arrive on the the real sense of what God was saying to those religious leaders and how they respond. And then think about how we respond as well. Okay, so at the beginning of the story, what do we see? Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. We see the landowner sets everything up really well. The landowner sets everything up really nicely. We see him digging a wine press. He's got everything sorted. He's he's built the wall, everything secure and safe for them. There's the watchtower Everything there, without going into the details of, let's try to assign a meaning to each particular different thing. We can see the general sense, this vineyard has been 
It's provided for them. It's been set up in a really lovely way. What we see straight away, the picture of the landowner and the vineyard, we see God's care for his people. We see how God has set everything up for his people. We see that right from the beginning of time as God created everything. He takes Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden. He puts them in a garden. He gives them everything they need. We see also in that wonderful, exciting story of how God leads his people out of Egypt. He rescues them from Egypt and he leads them through the desert. He brings them to a land. Brings them to a place for their very own and sets them up in that place. We see it in all sorts of places, all throughout the Bible, God's care for his people, how God loves his people. But we see very quickly things start to go wrong. At hard, uh, we rent it out to these farmers and he moves to another place and at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Sent still another and that one they killed. Then he sends many others. Some of them they beat, some of them they kill. See, very quickly... Things go wrong. We see the landowner completely rejected by the farmers. We see God completely rejected by his people. But before we look more at that, we see also a patient and merciful God. I guess if we put ourselves in the place of that landowner and we send a servant to go and collect the, collect the fruit that it was due. Go and see how they're doing. Get some of the fruit. And he comes back with nothing. I think possibly the next thing we do would be ride into town, kick them out, and get some new, new tenants in straight away. But we see a picture here. A patient, merciful landowner. A picture of a wonderful, merciful God. Patient. He doesn't ride into town straight away. He doesn't say, right, well, that's it, they've had it. We see a God who keeps reaching out to his people. And we see this this story itself and that whole sense of the servants being sent one after the other after the other alludes to the prophets of the Old Testament. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, what does it tell us about how God has spoken to his people? Hebrews 1 verse 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God continually, continually sent prophets to speak to his people. We see it in all sorts of ways throughout the Old Testament, just as way of example, we see how God spoke through the prophet Elijah. In one particular place, in, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, we see that God we, saw, we see that the people and, and King Ahab, under the reign of King Ahab, the people had gone completely the wrong way. And Ahab is described, as are many of the Old Testament kings, as having done evil in the eyes of the Lord. We see God comes and speaks through Elijah. Two, uh, 1 Kings 17 verse 1. 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. And so he withholds rain for a time. And this story goes on and climaxes this part of the story in a pretty well-known account of Elijah leading the people up Mount Carmel. And there's this whole challenge goes out and God's going to show, see who I am. See that I am God. And you have the people have all turned to Baal, they're worshipping Baal, this other god, and they've got these 450 prophets of Baal up on the mountain, and Elijah says, okay, build an altar, get your sacrifice, get it ready, okay, we're going to offer, offer something, no, 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 don't light it, no, no, don't light it, you call on Baal and get him to light it. And they're all dancing around and praying and whatever they're doing, and they're shouting out and screaming to Baal, and Elijah's like, well, what's going on? Where is he? What's What's happening? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And Elijah sets up. There were 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah's there on his own. He sets up and he's got this altar. He gets his sacrifice on the altar, ready to sacrifice it. Then he drenches it. Absolutely drenches it. So that in, in any natural sense, this is never going to catch fire. This is never going to be lit or burnt up. Then he calls on God. And God sends fire. And everything is burnt up. This drenched altar and sacrifice is just completely burnt up. And God makes his point. 1 Kings 18 verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And we see throughout the Old Testament, that's just one way God spoke to them. But again and again, he sent the prophets, often challenging the people's rebellion, often pointing out, guys, you're going the wrong way. We see that from the prophet Ezekiel. Again, by way of example, I found Ezekiel very easily this morning. Here we are, Ezekiel. Chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 2, and verse 3, we see God says to Ezekiel, Look, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Again and again, often with this message, return to me. Return to me. That's wonderfully shown in in Jeremiah chapter 3. It's another passage where God said, look, Israel's turned away. And then Judah's seen what Israel's done and they've turned away as well. And they've kind of pretended to come back to me, but they haven't really come back to me. And yet then, throughout the rest of that chapter, again and again, God's saying, return to me, O Israel. Return to me, O Israel. Return to me, I will restore you. Because God, throughout the time, sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet, yes, telling the people of their rebellion, yes, encouraging them to come back, 
but also speaking wonderfully of the restoration and hope that was to come. Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 53, speaks so wonderfully about the suffering servant, Jesus, who would come. And also in Isaiah 9, about that child, again, Jesus, the child who would be born, who would be the wonderful counsellor, the Prince of Peace, mighty God, the one who would reign on David's throne forever. God continually coming with, by his servant, speaking to his people again and again. But the story's right when it says the landowner sent his servants and one was beaten, another was killed, they were all rejected. You, pretty much all. Again and again, prophets rejected and rejected. The people would not give ear, as Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30. For many years you, God, were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. Or they would not give ear. They paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighbouring peoples. The people would not listen. As Stephen picked up even more clearly when he was speaking uh, in Acts chapter 7. Stephen speaking again to the religious leaders sometime after Jesus was in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. He's very clear with them, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Those who predicted the coming of Jesus. And if we had time and we could look into all these different things, but just quickly in 2 Chronicles 24 we can see Zechariah. The prophet, he was stoned to death. In that passage we were, read, we were looking at about Elijah, around that time, we hear that Jezebel had many of the prophets killed. The religious leaders would have known that Herod had recently had John the Baptist killed. Jeremiah, who we also mentioned, was threatened and plotted against. You can see that in Jeremiah 11, and at one point he was thrown into a cistern or a well in Jeremiah 38. The pattern continues to come. God keeps send, mercifully sending prophet after prophet to talk to his people. But they don't listen. They didn't like the truth that they heard. And in this story in Mark, the leaders would have been well aware of the context. They would have been well aware of the history that Jesus was describing to them. They would have known that in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. They might not have known that verse yet, but they would have known what it was talking about. They would have known. But he goes on. Verse 6. He sent all these servants. He had one left to send, a son 
whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. We see this landowner, he sent servant after servant. They've come back empty-handed, beaten. Some of them haven't come back at all. Now he comes to the conclusion, I'll send my son. This is coming to the climax of the story. He says, they will respect my son. The landowner sent his son. There's a point for us here, which we know so clearly, but God sent his son. God sent his son. God came into the world as a man, as a baby. John wonderfully talks about this at the beginning of his gospel. That wonderful kind of poetic way that he talks about it. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Then as that passage goes on, what does it say in verse 14? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It can become so familiar. But I've been struck by reading this book, Nabil Qureshi's story, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a devoted Muslim who became a Christian. God found him and pulled him in to the kingdom. But just in the, right at the beginning of the book, he's recalling one of his kind of desperate times, going back to the mosque and thinking, I don't understand what I am hearing. I used to be so sure. I used to be so sure that this was right. Now I'm not sure. But one of the things he's so clear is that you, you see it and you understand. You get something of the idea. He said, how could it be, God, that you, the perfect one, how could it be that you, the perfect one, would come into this polluted, dirty world? How could it be that you would become a man? And you can see from his worldview and from his perspective, it just is unthinkable. And yet we know it's true. And we, we glory, it's glorious that it's true. But I was so struck by it. When you actually realise, God is that great. He wasn't wrong about that. God is the perfect, almighty one. Doesn't he deserve so much more? And yet he chose to come and become a man. He became a baby. So that now we can read that glorious passage in Philippians 2, where Paul's encouraging us to humility, but talks of Jesus in this way. Philippians 2, verse 5, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. There's a glorious sense in this story of, uh, just remember who's telling the story. Jesus is telling the story of a landowner who sent his servant, then he sent his son. That's not me. But Jesus is telling the story. Look who stood before you. The son of God. The landowner has sent his son and he's here. It's wonderful. And yet, the story goes on. They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What we see, rather than the tenants respecting the son, we see a self-seeking, self-justifying response. Let's Let's get rid of him. And in some ways we can look at it and think, well, what what on earth were they thinking? Were they thinking, well, maybe they were thinking the father was dead. That's why the son's coming. And if if we get rid of the son, well, then we could justifiably say there's no one else. It's ours. Perhaps. Perhaps they weren't even really thinking at all. Not in any kind of deep way. It's just a sense that we've got to do something about him. We don't like what he's going to come and do. We don't like what he's saying. And so they recognise the air coming. They recognise the sun coming. And in a sense, having in an act of complete rejection of all that the landowner had done for them and all that the landowner was, they kill him. They kill him. And in reading it, we do see the father's son telling them the story. And Jesus has shown them, and he's been showing them through this kind of, uh, these few, uh, these last couple of chapters, and the events there. Look who I am. Look who I am. We see him coming in on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecies in the scriptures from the past. And we see him worshipped, Hosanna to the king who comes. Look who it is. He goes into the temple and acts with complete authority and says, I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with this and I have a right not to be happy with it. They question his authority, but he comes as a man with authority. He comes, look who I am before you. Look who I am. We come to the point of seeing Look what Jesus is saying to them. Look what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. Can't you see that this is what you are doing? You see, your forefathers rejected the prophets. You yourselves haven't recognised John. You've done a good job of trying to sit on the fence in the last bit that Dan told us about. Oh, well, if we say it was his authority was from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't we listen to him? Uh, and if we say he's from earth, then uh, we're, the people won't be very happy. So we'll just try and sit in the middle. But really, they haven't received John. They've rejected him. And seemingly, they're just taking for granted all that God has done for them. 
We see that so clearly in the story that the tenants seem to take completely for granted all that the landowner has done and the fact that it's the landowner who's in charge. The landowner who owns the vineyard. It's his. Rejected the prophets and now ultimately they're rejecting the son. Jesus is saying to them, don't you see? And he says it in this way. He says, have you not read this passage of scripture? Then he quotes Psalm 118. He says, look, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Again, if we look at John chapter 1, and this time in verse 11, we see that whole passage about the word becoming flesh. We see in verse 11, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the people of God. He came to the leaders who were irresponsible for looking after God's people. And they didn't receive him. They rejected him. So Jesus is putting this challenge up to them. Look, can't you see this is what you're doing? And then we see Jesus tells us what will happen. What will the owner do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus shows us what's going to happen. Jesus is coming to rule. Jesus is coming into his glory. Jesus is coming to the cross. But he's going to rise again. He's in control. He's the one who is the cornerstone. He's going to be the one in whom all things will tie together. And the tenants, these religious leaders, the people that this whole old covenant system is going And like it says, the vineyard will be given to others. We'll see those from every tribe and nation and tongue who believe in him. But Jesus kind of presents it. There's a choice here for them. Look, this is the truth. This is what it is. How are you going to respond? He's confronted him with this truth, then with this truth. I am the son. You've rejected the prophets, but I'm the son. I am here, and you need me. And interestingly, when he asks the question, what will, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Matthew gives us an, an interesting extra insight. Mark just carries on and shows that Jesus eventually picks it up again and tells them what's next. But Matthew reveals that actually some in the crowd have decided this isn't a rhetorical question. Matthew 21, verse 41 They answer the question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. We see the story is so stark and obvious, they know the right answer. They can see. In fact, if you're familiar with the story of David, of King David. We see a very similar thing with him. You see, there's a, a point in 2 Samuel, around 2 Samuel 12, or just before 2 Samuel 12, where it was the time, where, the time of the year when kings went out to war. 
and uh, King David didn't go out to war. And he stays around. And he sees this beautiful girl who's married. And he decides, I want her. So he takes her. And he gets her pregnant. And then he goes through this ridiculously horrible, convoluted scheme to try and get away with it. And he calls the, the woman's husband back from the army. And it's like, well, why aren't you going to your wife? And he said, well, I can't go to my wife. We're in the middle of a battle. And he's trying to make it look, well, if he'd gone to her, then I could have pretended it was his kid. And he wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have suspected anything. And then in the end, he has him killed. And why am I telling you that? Well, then Nathan the prophet comes to David. And he comes and he tells him a story. And he says, there was once a very rich man. And he had all sorts of cows and sheep and all sorts of things. And there was a very poor man. And he had just one little lamb. And then the rich man had some visitors. And he thought, well, I'm not going to kill one of my sheep or cows to give them some food. I'll take his. He takes the poor man's lamb. And he kills it. And eats it. And then Nathan asked David, similar like Jesus asked the, the leaders, what should happen to that man? And David's clear, well, that man, he's done something despicable. He should be killed. And Nathan voices what Jesus kind of says without saying anything. Nathan tells David up front, well, David, you're the man. You're the man. And Jesus, without having to say it, has got the point across to the religious leaders. You're the tenants. You are the tenants. Don't you see? This is the truth. They're presented with the truth. Now what are they going to do with it? What are they going to do with it? Jesus brings truth. We see it here with the leaders. We see it with David. We see it with Paul on the Damascus Road. Or Saul, to use his Hebrew name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus confronts him directly with the truth. Paul, you've got it wrong. And you see, with Paul and with David, they're confronted and they humble themselves. They humble themselves. You see, with Paul, this dramatic turnaround, this amazing dramatic turnaround, the man who zealously had been persecuting the church, locking them up, all sorts, rejoicing in the fact that Stephen was martyred. Now, He's taking the gospel to the nations. It's turned around. Because when he was confronted with the truth, he responded humbly. But how do they respond? They're angry. They know. Jesus, you're talking about us. But you see, in their pride, they maintain that the problem must be with Jesus. We're right, you're wrong. We need to deal with him. In fact, we need to get rid of him. We need to arrest him. Get rid of Jesus and everything will be okay. They won't humble themselves before him. They won't humble themselves. You see, Jesus hits their pride. We see he hits it. You see, guys, you've got it wrong. Oof. 
but he also, it's also affecting their position. Their standing, their, their authority is completely under question here. What do we do about it? If we believe what he says, we need to humble ourselves before this man, before this son of God. What are the people going to think about that? What is going to happen? How are we going to admit that we've got it wrong all this time? And so it seems easier for them to just carry on. We're right, he's wrong. We, the builders, are right. This stone, he's wrong. But that stone is going to be the cornerstone. So how do we respond? Because you see, Jesus confronts us with truth both of the truth of who he is and of the depth of our sin and our need of him. In some ways, he confronts us with the same challenge that the leaders have. It seems quite a, a, an extreme case where the leaders are so entrenched and they're not going to turn around and they're not going to turn back, but Jesus confronts us in the same way and says, look, you, you are a rebellious people. Without me, you are lost. So humble yourself before me. You need me, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has gone to the cross for you. You need to acknowledge and humble yourself and say, look, I have got it wrong. I need Jesus. He confronts us like that, but he also confronts us and just nudges us in all sorts of little ways. Like he held up a very clear mirror to the to the religious leaders. They could see, well, yes, he is talking directly to us. He can hold up a mirror to us and say, yeah, that that thing that's niggling away, when are you going to deal with that? Are you going to humble yourself before me and let me deal with it? Whether that's some area of secret sin or whether it's a bitterness that's just been held onto or whatever it might be, how do we respond? Do we respond like David or like Paul, humbling ourselves before God? Yeah, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I need you. Because it's so easy for us to cling on in pride and say, no, I can deal with this, I can handle it, I can sort it. Or, conversely, to think, I can't deal with the shame of this. What are other people going to think? What's this going to do for my position? I've got to keep up appearances and and keep going and it will be okay. Jesus encourages us to humble ourselves before him. To deal with it because he wants to set us free. He wants to set us free. Ultimately, he has set us free at the cross. And so now, he calls us to come humbly to him. He confronts us with truth. He calls us to humble ourselves before him day by day in living for him, in giving everything to him. Not holding things back and saying, no, this bit's mine, God. I'm going to deal with it my way. Because ultimately the truth is, it's his vineyard. 
It's his vineyard and it's his glory that we live for. It's his position that we are exalting, not our position. It's his church. And he is in charge, not us. He is the one who has set this cornerstone. Glorious truth. As Peter goes on to develop that, he, in his letter, in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, talks about us being living stones, being built together, rooted on this cornerstone. But it's the cornerstone that's important. He's the one. And as it's his vineyard, as he's in control, as it's his glory that we're living for, we can trust him. Not us. The leaders got the point that they were, he was talking about them. But he kept, they kept maintaining, no, we've got it right. He must be wrong. No, we can trust him. We can trust him. Because he's always right. Ultimately, our hope is in him. So let's humble ourselves before him. So we sometimes sing, Christ alone, cornerstone. He's the one who our hope is in.